Season two of Breaking Beta is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. After the episode, use the code BETA15 for 15% off of your next order at gonarly.com or click the link in your show notes to have the code automatically applied. Gnarly Nutrition. Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. So, how's it look? Meaning, do I see it? Yes. Do you see it? Basically, any lawman worth his salt's gonna spot that, yeah. Assuming that's a deal breaker? Yes, it's a deal breaker. Well, if stealth is what you're aspiring to, you'd best go with something more compact. 38 Special, snub nose. Got a concealed hammer so it doesn't catch on your belt when you draw. Tried and true, no nonsense about it. Five shots. Yeah. Automatic has how many? Ten in the mag, one in the chamber. If you can't get it done with five, then you're into spray and pray, in which case I wouldn't count on another six closing the deal. You only need five shots, Paul, because spray and pray is not acceptable. You have to take careful aim at your target, and it's to your advantage to have a bigger target, even if you just think it's bigger than it actually is. And, you know, too much spraying is never a good thing, right? <laughs> Hadn't even made that connection. Until oh, right man, I thought moment. that's where you were going with all this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we are here today to discuss a review from movement researcher Rob Gray called Embodied Perception in Sport. Um, it was published in 2013 in the International Review of Sport and Exercise Psychology with the goal of to first review the recent evidence that supports the idea that the perception of objects in the sporting environment is embodied rather than simply processed in the brain. Um, to consider the mechanisms underlying this embodiment and to discuss its potential, potential functional value for sports performance. Um, when you first started looking into this paper, what was your immediate thought? Um, I was pretty interested to look into it. Uh, I had read, so Rob Gray, uh, the author of this review, he came out with a book fairly recently. Mm-hmm. And I read that book. Uh, I think I texted you right around the time when he – brought up this top. I was like, Hey, this seems kind of interesting for rock climbing. So I was excited to dig into the paper. Um, I still have some questions, I think, and in terms of how we can take this concept and apply it to sports that are different than what they talk about in the study. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think it's really cool science and it really gives a lot of impetus for like having to take a step back and think about these things and how we can apply them as, both performers and coaches. Yeah, same. Um, and I agree. I, I think Rob's book is great. Uh, I've read it a couple of times now, and I've had quite a few conversations with Rob um, as a patron of his podcast, um, doing these roundtable sort of Zoom calls. And He's got the reserved Chris question hour now, doesn't he? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and and I've asked him a lot of these same questions that I think you're pondering about how to take some of this research and apply it to climbing. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to discuss today how this paper can relate to us in climbing. 
uh, let's jump into it. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Look, you two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. With our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready? 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 I am so ready. My computer screen looks about the size of my wall right now. (laughs) (laughs) You? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, based on my action capabilities, I perceive myself (laughs) to be ready. Um. Let, maybe we should start by talking about what embodied perception is. Um, so in sports, pretty much across the board, um, we often hear athletes describing their experiences in this subjective manner. Uh, in the article, Rob gives the examples of Mickey Mantle saying, I just saw the ball as big as a grapefruit. And NBA player Dennis Scott saying that on a good night, making shots was like throwing pebbles in the ocean. Um, These are often related to the size of the objects or the the ease of doing this task. Um, And for climbers, we might say things like, you know, the crimp just seemed like a jug this go or that move didn't even look big anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like that. You know, the perception of of what we're being asked to do changes. Um, we hear people who are performing poorly say the opposite, that the holds seem terrible or the move just looked bigger or mm-hmm. whatever the case might be. And we know that the physical properties of the holds and moves aren't changing. And, you know, we've all seen this happen when working on a boulder or whatever. And in the space of a few attempts, that perception can change for us. So we're also not improving our own abilities in those few attempts. So, you know, are these just exaggerations? And if not, what causes this? Um, one explanation is this theory of embodied perception. It was originally proposed in 2006 uh, by Dennis Prophet. And the theory is that the way we receive visual information is scaled by our ability to then act on what it is we're being asked to do. So it's a combination of us receiving it in our eyes and our abilities to do the thing. And that's, that alters our perception. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. And I think, you know, it's a pretty dynamic thing and you mentioned it, how like it can change very quickly, whether like, you know, things such as outside events uh, uh, coming in, you know, just feeling, feeling more comfortable with how we're moving or there's a, fatigue setting in can, yeah, all of can that. change how you perceive a move. So it's a wildly can be a wildly changing situation, which changes how we view things. So it's, it's a pretty interesting thing to think about. Yeah. So in essence, it's our perception isn't necessarily what's actually physically there but it changes based on how we're able to interact with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. This is the kind of topic that I really love digging into. So this is kind of cheating for me because, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not leaning into the science as much as into these theoretical ideas. Um, and actually, I think this sort of topic has more to contribute than might first meet the eye. No, no pun intended there. 
Rob says that there are three types of action-related variables that can influence perception. And we're going to go through each of these, including the basics of some of the studies that he looks at in this review mm -hmm. and how they might relate to climbing. Right. So number one is changes in perception due to the current skill level of the performer. This says that athletes at an expert level should perceive their environment as affording more opportunities for successful action than a lesser skilled athlete would. Um, it's important to note that current skill is what's at play here. Mm -hmm. So as you improve, you see more opportunities and that should scale back when you aren't performing so well. That can be due to fatigue or ability level or whatever it is. Um, so theoretically holds might look bigger, moves might look smaller, angles and heights might look more approachable, mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of, one of the studies that really looks at this and breaks down kind of, you can see how this, these two things interact. It's with a uh, amateur softball players. It was a wit and profit in 2005, um, so these are solid players who had just finished a set of games. So they had a good idea of what their most recent batting average was. So, you know, that's a pretty, pretty current numerical reflection of skill. You could say for softball and right. they were to perform a task where they had to match objects of different sizes and would, they would take what they matched to what they estimated the actual size of a softball was. And they found that the right. players who had the higher batting averages, so in the current window or frame of reference, they were more skilled, um, they perceived a softball to look a little bit larger compared right. to someone else. And this is an object that they interact with regularly. Mm -hmm. I yeah, think that's really interesting. Yeah, and there was a significant differences in how this the size of this softball for people who would just spent a bunch of time swinging at a softball. So the people who were hitting the ball better saw the ball look a lot larger. Yeah, super interesting. And that's been mm -hmm. duplicated in golf, field goal kicking, a football, darts, archery, and, and more. Um, Rob Gray has also studied this and uh, a paper from his, of his from 2013 showed it the same thing with ball speed. Um, mm -hmm. that players in a slump thought the ball was moving faster than the players who were hitting well. Yeah, so it's it reflects how these things that we intuit as unchanging can relatively look a lot different based right. on just this right. one factor of skill. Yeah, one, one paper he mentions very briefly in this review. Um, I went and read this paper as well. It's a 2011 paper from Taylor Witt and Sugovic. Mm -hmm. And it looks at this effect in parkour. Oh, man, I completely um, missed this paper. Oh, wow. I, I missed it the first two times I read through this. And then the third time, I just happened to see it. And I thought, well, that might relate to climbing in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. um, and in that study... There were 35 participants, 17 with experience, 18 novices, and they found that the more experienced parkour participants perceived walls as shorter than the novices. The test was set up so that they were they would approach a wall that they were being asked to climb over, and they had to estimate the height of the wall. Mm -hmm. And the the more experienced parkour 
participants were, were closer to the actual size of the wall, where the novices saw the wall as much bigger than it actually was. And I think that has some cool implication for climbing. I think so too. And that actually starts. So one of the questions I was going to mention for this whole talk today was, um, it seems like all of the studies that I've highlighted and selected, because I missed this one, all dealt with dealing with a separate object and manipulating that object throughout an environment. And, you know, that is a little different than rock climbing where you're the object that you're manipulating or you're putting force into a hold. So that was one of the themes I was seeing where I didn't really see anything connecting into that, but I just looks like I just missed that line in the paper. So that's cool. That parkour one comes out. Yeah, totally. I, I thought the same thing. I was having the same like struggle with it that you were. And then I saw this and, and it gives some interesting implications, you know, um, this study, what was happening is the people would walk up to the takeoff point on the ground, um, right in front of the wall. And then someone would take an orange cone and move it away from them parallel to the wall and they would say stop when they thought that person was at the height that the wall was in Mm. front of them. Interesting. Um, So I've seen this thing happen in climbing very often where when you get under a wall, a move looks way bigger than it actually is. Um, Mm -hmm. So this study just makes me think that maybe the more experienced the climber the less impossible those big moves look when you actually get under the wall, Um, which I think is interesting. I wonder if that could relate in the other way too, because we've all had that experience where you're standing on the ground feeling holds and being like, oh, this, you know, this isn't that bad. That move isn't that big. And then you get under it and you're surprised the other way. It was like, oh, this is different than I thought it was going to be. Right. So I wonder if, the skill aspect of that could maybe apply to when you're the more skilled or experienced climber is standing there holding onto the holds when, with their feet on the ground. I wonder if they're more accurately able to perceive what's going to come of actually doing the move at that angle with foot on foothold and so on and so forth. Yeah, I have to think so. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, uh, the, my main climbing partner is Lana. Um, we're at pretty different levels of ability and, Oftentimes when we go out bouldering and I'll think I found a boulder that's going to be fun for her to try, she will very often, without knowing the difficulty of the boulder, see it as much taller than it actually is. She's like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know, that's that's way too tall for me. And I'm like, Lana, you just you just climbed a much harder boulder than this is going to be that's twice the height of this. You know, it's and, and she just views these things as much bigger than they mm-hmm. are very often. Um, and it, I think it's the same with moves. I think it's um, the same with like angle, um, whether it's a route or a boulder that you can perceive it to be way steeper than it actually is. And, you know, if the length of a route, if you perceive it to be way longer than it actually is, that could very well influence mm-hmm. your decision to try a thing. Sure. Very much so. So yeah, it's, it's, it's out there for sure. And then uh, number two is the changes in perception due to task difficulty. So this just says that assuming the athlete remains the same skill level, a change in the difficulty of the task. So a harder move or harder boulder route or whatever, for example, 
might cause the athlete to perceive um, something as worse. So right. uh, worse or better, whatever. Um, so you might see a hold as worse, even if it's the same as a hold on a much easier boulder, just because it's on a harder boulder. Mm -hmm. um, sure. So our perception of things changes due to task difficulty. Yeah. And, um, one of the studies cited in this review, uh, you actually mentioned it in the first uh, section was, uh, the gray 2013 paper where in addition to just relating to the, the size of the ball and relating to the player's current skill, um, they also had them do two different directional hitting tasks. So hitting the ball either to the left or right side of the field, I think respectively, this was called pole or opposite field hitting. So mm -hmm. left side of the field was the pole hit. The right side of the field was the opposite field hit. And then they also had a condition where they could just hit the ball wherever. And, um, traditionally it seems that the opposite ball, uh, batting swing, opposite field hit is more difficult than a pole hit. And it, they saw in this study that for the more difficult hit, which is the opposite field, the ball was perceived as smaller. So the harder the task right. was, the smaller they perceived the ball to be. Right. And the, the people who were hitting just anywhere perceived the ball to be bigger than the yep. people who were ha having to hit to a specific location. Yeah. And this has also been seen in golf and table tennis. Yep. Um, so there's a, you know, a fair size of a fair body of research out there showing these effects. Um, you know, I think this, this very easily relates to climbing and like harder things can seem bigger, can seem more daunting. Um, not just because they're actually harder, but because we perceive them to be different than they actually are. You think complexity of the move sets or like, could also lead to some of this perception of holds yeah. feeling worse or just the tactile sense of these holds being a little different or less than optimal, the, the more complicated the climbing gets. Yeah, I have to think so. Mm. Um, you know, I think this, I think this whole conversation is going to be a little bit tough to wade through, but I mm -hmm. think it opens up this, this huge door to how, how we are perceiving climbs and how that causes us to make certain decisions versus other decisions and how we might train those things. You know, um, in the machine shop, I see this at play really regularly. Um, a hold might be perceived as bad, like the same one person might call a hold a bad hold, but then they might use that same exact hold on another easier boulder and it's mm -hmm. no longer a bad hold. You know, and I'm like, it, you know, was it a hard move? Were you just saying the wrong thing or did you actually perceive that hold as a bad hold? Yeah. Um, so I think it's really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a brain squeezer at times. Yeah. Um, number three changes in perception due to the task goal. So this theorizes that the, the objects suitable for the goal the athlete is trying to achieve will be perceived as affording more opportunity for successful action. So holds might seem bigger, move smaller when compared to the holds that aren't suitable for what the climber is trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Say that one more time for me. I got to <laughs> rethink that one. So holds might seem bigger 
or a move smaller when compared to a move or hold that's not suitable for that athlete. So if you're steeped in one style, the move that fits your style is going to seem smaller than the move that doesn't fit your style. So the task goal has the holds that fit your task goal, doing it in your style are going to seem better to you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that checks out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, trying to, I, I, trying I to relate to, all this to yeah. climbing is hard. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, you chose that, uh, that part of this. It's like, yeah, go ahead. Um, but yeah, so again, the paper that looked into this as well amongst many others, but is this great 2013 paper. Um, so going back to where the, the athlete had to either hit the opposite field hit or pull the ball, um, depending on what their goal was in relation to all the other balls. So they came out, they pitched at different angles in this. I believe this is the simulator, right? That they did, or is this actual I, hitting? Cause I know they did both for this. I don't remember, but yeah. definitely when you're trying to hit a ball to a certain field, um, certain pitches lend themselves better to either pull hitting or right. opposite field hitting. So say one of these athletes had the goal of, or the task to hit that pull shot, the pitches mm -hmm. that were more suitable for that pull shot appeared larger. So, which is interesting. So it seems yeah. like there was almost some unconscious processing during this action that allowed this player to perceive the best pitches that were going to make the likelihood of being successful at that task. They looked larger than other pitches that didn't quite look like, or that weren't going to make it as easy to hit that specific shot. Right, exactly. And it's interesting you said unconscious processing, you know, because this this theory is sort of at odds with the idea of the actual theory of processing this information. Mm -hmm. Like there's not really time to process it. Um, so this is saying that it's more embodied, like it's built into our action capabilities um, right. to see things this way. So you know, and there is the one theory that says this is all controlled by the brain. It's all being processed. You know, mm -hmm. these are all learned and memorized things. Yeah, I was thinking along the lines of how it's, I guess he talks about it later where they're on the, these occur online. So I guess right. in real time, as opposed to that post action, even just minuscule post action, but that post processing, I guess where I, I just chose the wrong word. But yeah, so it's happening in real time. Like it's you're you're seeing the ball as bigger instead of just remembering yes. it as bigger later. Thank you. Yeah, much better, much better put than how I put it. But um, yeah, and you know, like I I tried to explain and I fumbled through at the beginning of this this section. Um, when two people with varying movement styles are working on the same boulder, say, um, they'll often perceive different holds or moves um, as smaller holds or bigger holds or whatever based on which technique it is that they're best at. Mm -hmm. So they're not evaluating the the hold realistically. They're they're perceiving it to be a better hold or a worse hold um, based on their own action capabilities. And you know, there's there's lots of theory at work here and, you know, trying to relate this to climbing. So there's certainly argument there, mm -hmm. but I do think it's an interesting idea. Definitely. And I think, you know, as coaches being aware of these three, um, K 
categories of how someone you work with can be perceiving certain elements of climbing or certain movements. That's mm-hmm. just another tool in the toolbox to how can you help this person or how can you, how can you, your own self, uh, help your help performance improve by this could be another method of addressing this. Absolutely. Uh, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about some of the questions we have about this paper and some of the ways we might use it. Please. All right. I really need a break here. Okay. You know, that time when conditions are perfect, just the right amount of chilly and crisply dry, and you're totally focused on the project. You're climbing really well. It all feels amazing right up until you're crashing and you blow it after you got through the crux for the first time? Yeah, I used to be you. I'd forget to drink water and eat snacks. My energy would tank, I'd get hangry, I'd blame everything but myself. Well, not anymore. Gnarly Hydrate has the perfect amount of electrolytes, natural sugars, B vitamins, and deliciousness to help keep you going all day. Yes, science! Use code BETA15, that's B-E-T-A-1-5, for 15% off your next order at gonarly.com or click the link in the show notes to have the code automatically applied. Oh, and try the raspberry. You could thank me later. So I'll go back to work, for Christ's sake, okay? Okay, we have returned. Um, maybe we start, Paul, with some of the questions that you have in in the setup you know, or in how these things relate to climbing. Yeah. So I guess the big one that we sort of talked about a little bit when we noticed that parkour paper was my big question I had was how do we take this body of evidence? And we know, I mean, it's, it's a pretty logical assumption to make that when you read all this about, you know, motor control and selection of movements or how we move in general, that obviously this applies to climbing somehow. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's like, how do we take, the methods they've used where all these athletes are manipulating something external to the body and it's not the actual field. Cause I think we're, our field is the problem or the root or whatever we're climbing on at the time. And yeah, we're not moving a ball across that field. We're moving across that field. So what's the intermediate object that we need to change or manipulate or focus on attentionally. And I think we'll get into that later on. I just said the attention part, but um, yeah, just, I was just, my big question was how does, how can we find a little bit more concrete link to rock climbing? And that, I think that parkour paper highlights one of the ways. Yeah. I would, I would love to see this looked at with like hold size. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of us spend quite a bit of time now on 20 millimeter edges Um, So we're fairly familiar with a 20 millimeter edge. I would love to see a 20 millimeter hold put on different angles or different difficulties of climb and, and have several different climbers try to identify what size that hold is and, and see if it changes based on their ability or uh, the actual difficulty of the climb or the size of the move to Mm -hmm. it or off of it or whatever, if that changes our perception of how big that hold actually is. I suspect that it does. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly for me in my experience, when I've climbed on something and I think the hold is terrible, you know, I might come back either in 
um, better conditions or a stronger climber or whatever. And then I'm like, this hold is actually big. Why did I ever think it was terrible? Um, mm -hmm. And it's not, that's not me saying I can leverage myself better on this hold now. That's me making a, a decision about the hold. And, and I think those decisions are the things that can very often lead us into the decisions we make about our tactics, um, about our, our attempts at performance on that day or future attempts. Um, it's very easy to say, oh, that, that thing is bad, that move is too big, that, that boulder's too tall, whatever, and then just never try again. And I think we could expand that hold size into a bunch of other stuff with just our tactile sense of that hold, right? How in-cut is it? I think not only mm -hmm. looking at ha having climbers identify how big this hold is, but give them like, you know, is it sloping? Is it partially yeah. sloped? Is it neutral? Is it partially in-cut? Is it in-cut? I think that would be an interesting thing to explore too. See if, how, if, how, how good, how well can I get behind this hold based on the task demand or perceived difficulty. Yeah, totally. And, and I would love to, I mean, I think it would be actually quite simple to set up a few moves of different size, you know, mm -hmm. different space between two holds and ask, you know, a bunch of climbers to say, how big is that move? You know, in, you know, give it a, a number, how many feet, how many meters, whatever mm -hmm. is the distance between these two holds. And I, I'd be curious to see if, better climbers said that it's smaller than it is, or it's closer to, to reality. Um, and climbers who weren't quite as skilled think it's even bigger. Yeah. And, uh, when you mentioned something about different beta, different solutions earlier, that brought me back to another part of this paper that I highlighted. That's a little bit further down where he talks about action specific perception could serve a functional role through changes in action selection. And he uses the idea for a basketball player who misses a bunch of shots, perceives the mm -hmm. hoop to be smaller. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's going to be dribbling closer or passing the ball to a teammate. And right. I was like, is, could that sort of perception influence our beta from like day two to day one or vice versa? You come in, try this one sequence that isn't maybe the ideal sequence, but it's what you feel the right one is at the time, just because you're perceiving these things to be this way. You come in the next day and things feel different. And you end up trying something completely different, but that's what works. And I wonder if yeah. some of that plays into effect for this. Yeah, I have to think so. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen that at play so often. Mm -hmm. And I think what we tend to do is we speak in metaphors and, you know, saying things like the ball was as big as a grapefruit or, you know, it was like throwing pebbles in the ocean. I think we speak in metaphor but we do that because that's also the way we often perceive. Mm -hmm. Then we try to rationalize it in a more, you know, static, realistic way. When I think we can leverage some of this um, perception to to aid us in in training and practice and in performance. So, so I have to think that you know finding a different beta solution there is this perception, the embodied perception involved in that oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, before you started diving down some, uh, before you looking into this research and I'm sure you've looked through it over time. Mm -hmm. Um, 
do any of the drills you or drills or practices you yourself or people you've had your athletes work with, do you have stuff that you just knew worked, but you never really thought super, uh, you probably always thought super deeply about why something worked, but, um, that you could refer that to this idea and be like, Oh, this is a good way to explain why this has been so effective in my training or why I've recommended to people. Does that question make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually one of my favorite drills and I think one of our most effective drills, um, is one size fits all, um, which is essentially, you know, climbing a set hand sequence, but then trying to get as high a feet as possible for one time up and then as low a feet as possible, get as stretched out as possible, um, the next time up. And very often I see people, you know, we talk about it in terms of boxes, like you climb in this very specific box. It's, it can get stretched out to a point and it can get bunched up to a point and everybody has their comfort box. And almost across the board, when I've done, um, s individual sessions with short climbers, they will climb with their feet really high. And then I say, well, can you get your feet higher? No, I can't. That would be crazy. You know, I can't get my feet any higher than that. And I'm like, well, I can get my feet higher than you. Why? And, and I think it's just because they, they're in their comfortable box. They've, they perceive these other things as ridiculously high. And, but then once they try it, they actually can climb that way and it opens up new doors. Yeah. Same with feet that are really far away. It's like, um, I can't reach that foothold or I can't get my foot all the way exactly. over there. Yeah. Um, I remember, I very distinctly remember, uh, climbing with two of my clients in the Red River Gorge. Uh, they were avoiding a foothold. They're, they both have a larger span than I do. They were avoiding this foothold for this big move. It was too low in their estimation. Um, I stepped on the foothold and reached the thing statically. And they were just like, how did you know you could reach that? Why didn't that move look gigantic to you? And, and I'm just like, well, I've, I've done this drill. I've practiced this thing, you know, so I'm, my ability, my skill level at climbing in this box made it so that I didn't perceive that move as big at all. Mm -hmm. You know, it just looked like a normal move to me. So I definitely think a lot of these drills do operate with this, you know, changing of your perception in mind to some degree. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones that jumped out to me when I was kind of thinking about this as well uh, was the one touch drill. And, you know, it's always been a good drill for just grabbing holds correctly or being okay with not hitting things correctly, but also just a line in this paper where uh, a task relevant object becomes accentuated. So it stands out from other task irrelevant objects. I think that mm -hmm. one touch drill is a great job of practicing that attentional focus on a target and getting better at that and yeah. making that object seem larger or more important to you at that time. So I think this, that one touch drill could tie into this improving your flexibility of perception. I'm trying to find the right words for this, but I think that's a good yeah. way to think about it. Actually, yeah. like, you know, making, making your comfort zone of perception bigger, maybe. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up that attention. Uh, Rob sort of puts forth the idea that 
um, one of the mechanisms that can be used to explain the effects of these task goals on changes in the perception of target objects is visual attention. Um, when a person intends to act on an object, it tends to stand out and become accentuated. Um, so, you know, if we're going into a situation looking for a specific thing and we're putting our attention on those things, they will thereby offer more opportunity for successful action mm -hmm. um, and, and look bigger or the moves will look smaller or whatever it, you know, whatever it is. It's, we're going to perceive it as easier. Yeah. One of the other things he mentions in here um, that I find really interesting is that anxiety can cause these action-specific effects of perception to go away. Mm -hmm. I think that has a lot of um, carryover to climbing oh, in that sure. we're very often performing in front of a crowd. Um, you know, we're at a crag with a bunch of other people. And when we allow anxiety to come into those situations and, and sort of control our narrative in that moment, very often it can cause us to not see the holds as big, not see the moves as smaller. Um, we start to perceive it in a different way than if we were performing well and not anxious. Mm -hmm. There's ways you can address that in, in some circumstances, I think, by reducing mm -hmm. perceived risk, you know, better pads, power spotting into a move, or just having a great spot. Um, but also, yeah, when we're, we're in a crowds and when we're in crowds and we're in a comp and there's more of that pressure to perform or there's a bunch of people at the cliff and you're not a fan of climbing with a lot of people watching you like that'll change your what you perceive to be possible or how you perceive how hard things are so yeah. how do you how do you train that do you find better ways to expose the athlete to that or do you remove it and focus on just creating more windows of perception does that make sense? Yeah, I think. Or do I you mean, do my, both? I mean, you probably do both, right? Yeah, I think I think you attack it from both sides, and mm -hmm. you know, my go-to is kind of always to give some exposure in a in a safe way um, that allows us to lean into the difficult parts of this exposure, you know. Um, and I think that can be really, really valuable and important. You know, we see exactly what you're describing happen often with clients who are like, I, I wanted to go get on this project, but I didn't, you know, I wanted to try this thing, but I didn't because it looked really hard and there were a bunch of people there and, you know, they, they just shy away from it. They don't even try these things that we as coaches know they're entirely capable of doing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do think you can lean into that. You can lean into it in the gym. Um, you know, you can purposely make yourself get in line for things. Um, you know, if that makes you anxious, there was a, a whole season in the Red River Gorge when I put in my training plan to be the last person awake at Miguel's at night and to purposely go down with no partners so that I had to find partners day of, um, because I hated it. I, I wanted to be the person who had everything planned out, you know? And I'm like, this puts me in a situation where when my plans don't go my way, I crumble. Mm 
You so. found partners out of the blue at Muscle Beach for your <laughs> off with roof crack project? <laughs> this was well after <laughs> my off with days. So <laughs> no, there were no partners for that. Just Ray and I. That was it. <clears throat> Glad we had each other in those days. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and, and another thing he says here that I think is really interesting is that it's been shown that when the size of a target object is increased to a level where the action is no longer possible, mm-hmm. action-specific effects on perception disappear. And that was the one um, where they had the study where uh, the individuals had ankle weights on and were to judge like how hard they needed to jump to get across that gap. To get I believe, across a gap, yeah. Until it got to the point where it was just like clearly impossible, and then like their perceptions really didn't change or reflect because they saw no opportunity for action there. Exactly. Once the gap was so big, they couldn't jump across it. It the perception stayed the same. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting because it, it it puts us in this place where for things that are possible for us, our perception might be doing some of the leading the way in our decision making. Mm-hmm. Whereas we see the things that that we know aren't possible for us you know, as, as more realistic, but the things that might be possible for us, our perception might be altering how Mm. we see it, how we interact with it. Yeah. I think as coaches, that's a really scary and fascinating thing to think about. Yeah. It's, you know, as a coach, it could come down to just like taking the time to build that relationship to your relationship with your athlete and knowing what they're capable of sometimes or at least as good as they do maybe a little better and you can kind of nudge them towards those things where these processes start to come into play and just making sure what you're having the individual do is appropriate for where they're at Mm -hmm. yeah and i I mean based on this paper and i think next week we're also going to be looking at another rob gray paper um that is sort of a you know, it plays off of this paper pretty well, Mm -hmm. I think, um, because attentional focus seems to be one of the best ways to uh, train how, you know, being able to change our perception of things um, by getting better at, at focusing on specific things or putting our attention in specific places. Um, we might be able to control the narrative that the perception gives us, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. That'll be good to dig into that next one. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think it's like we said, a, a tough conversation to wade through lots of theory, lots of trying to change, um, the, the way we talk about it and the, the way we think about it. Because like I said, I think we tend to try to think in, terms of reality and you know i think what it comes down to is our our individual realities are not the same right mm-hmm. and the the way we perceive things the way we receive things uh, will change what our reality is um so i think if we get too static and too like cut and dry with the way we view our realities, our situations, um, we're doing a disservice to the clients and to the climbers, um, that we work with. So I think perception has to be taken into account and 
And I'm really interested to get into this next paper and see if we can come up with any ways based on it, um, any further ways that we can train this, this in climbers so that their, their perception of their tasks is, is more, uh, provides more opportunity for action. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something to consider just in terms of giving advice for individuals or creating these plans to help someone get better at something. It's like you said, it's more than just the cut and dry object. Uh, I don't know if objective, objective right reality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of thinking about it. A lot of thinking about the right words to say, even just in conversations about it. Cause it's a slippery yeah. topic, but just because it's slippery doesn't mean it's not important and it deserves being discussed. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that this is another reason why just reading the abstract of something, um, just a a quick cursory read over the research is not always enough. Um, You know, some of these things are really complicated topics that we have to weave into the sports that, that we are coaching in or that we participate in. And, and that can take a lot of mental energy Mm -hmm. to do. Um, I'm also glad you said just then, um, you made me think of the awareness of this, just that it exists, I think can be a really powerful tool for climbers. Mm -hmm. Next time you see something, next time you walk out to a thing you wanted to try and your immediate reactions are, oh, those moves look too big and the holds look too bad and it looks too tall and too steep, maybe consider that this might just be your perception of it and you need to actually give it a try Mm -hmm. um, before you make a judgment on whether or not you can do this thing. Yeah. Top on it. Give it a rip. You never know what could happen. Yeah, totally. All right. You can find both Paul and I all over the internets by following the links right there in your show notes. You can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, If you have questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up, community.powercompanyclimbing.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and please tell all of your friends who insist that that mini jug is actually a 10-millimeter edge, that you have the perfect podcast for them. We'll see you next week when we discuss pressure and performance streaks and whether you're focusing your attention on the right things. See you all next week. It's done! You keep saying that, and it's bullshit every time! Always! You know what? I'm done! Okay? You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning, and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost! in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Radio. 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 